0: Well, Father, I think we would agree together here in this room this morning that that is our desire. It is the intention of our hearts when we stop and think and, and we're spirit-controlled and we, we do so desire to know you and to walk with you and, and to know the power of your resurrection and, and to experience the sufferings of your death and to have victory over sin and, and to walk like Jesus. Father, we admit that we're easily scattered, we're easily broken down, we're vulnerable to our own weaknesses, we recognize that the world presses in upon us and that Satan in all of his schemes and deception is actively uh, working against us and seeking to devour us. And So Father, thank you for times like this when we can renew perspective, Uh, we can encourage one another as the body of Christ. We can pray together and for one another. We can take our Bibles now and be strengthened in our walk with you. And so renew us, strengthen us with your word. May the Holy Spirit have great freedom to accomplish his purposes in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I'm confident that it is uh, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. Most of you will know it well. It's in Luke chapter 10, and I'd like to go there for our introduction this morning. It is a parable that Jesus told in response to a question. It's Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and I just want to read it and remind us of this uh, story that Jesus told that we know so well as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It begins in verse 25. Remember that Luke was a historian, and he was not present to hear Jesus Uh, speak this parable, but that in his research, he came up with these things. He he cross-examined, and he gave an orderly account of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. And this is one of his records for us. And behold, verse 25, Luke 10, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That is, to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Jesus says to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, that would be in elevation, heading down the mountain. And he fell among robbers on the trail there, a stony, uh, deserted area, making travelers vulnerable to bandits. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Can't you visualize it? He comes around the curve, there's this broken body of this poor, pitiful, beaten man, and the priest thinks to himself, I just don't have time for this today. Skirts over to the other side, off he goes. So likewise, a Levite, that would be uh, an associate or an assistant to the priest, and uh, he, When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. These are men who should know better. These are teachers of the law. These are the religious leaders of the day. These are also, also men who are Jews. This is a Jew who has been broken here. He passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, all right? So you need to know that we now have racial conflict brought into the story. A Samaritan is a half-breed. It would be a half-Jew, half uh, Gentile, It was um, there was a divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, in that day, if a Jew was taking a trip and he was going to go through Samaria, he um, on, on the other side of Samaria, he wouldn't cut through. He'd rather walk around than set foot in their land. It's kind of like if you grew up in Michigan, you avoid going to Ohio at all costs, and you'll go clear around Indiana to get to Pennsylvania. You just don't go there. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, that would be some cash, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay repay you when I come back. So run up a tally. I'll be sure and come back this way and take care of everything. Jesus then asks, verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This morning I want to address our congregation with a message that's on my heart it has to do with it has to do with the theology of rescue you might call it the the doctrine of refreshment now you might think to yourself wait a minute i have a theology text at home and i'm not sure that i really have thought about the theology of rescue Well, we have modeled for us in this story um, uh, what Jesus talked about, how we should care for our neighbors. You need to know that if you're new to us, that for some months, Fellowship Bible Church has been watching out for some of its neighbors. It's had a little bit of an impact upon our church, more upon the leadership uh, directly than it has the congregation at large. And in fact, it's very much what our meeting is about tonight at the pavilion at six o'clock. This is a congregational business meeting that is open to all people. Bring dessert. Join us at six o'clock at about 630. We'll have a business uh, uh, time of business and discussion. If you're new to our church, I'd recommend that you come. It's always important to watch how a church carries out business. It's particularly important for members to come. But let me remind you that um, about over a year ago, we took over the the Bakerton Church of God, and it has become the Bakerton Bible Church, and it's impacted us. Our pastors have uh, revolved through the pulpit there. I've been over there some. It's it's changed the flow of things here a little bit. People have been ministering there, and it is now the Bakerton Bible Church, and that's taken uh, some oversight by our elder board. You pray for us. There's more uh, more oversight and and influence needed right now as we continue into the future and and establish them as an independent Bible church working alongside us in our community. And then more recently this spring... Um, we, uh, some weeks ago, made you aware of the fact that since late winter and into the spring and near into the summer, our elders have been meeting with some uh, leaders from a little Bible church near Hamilton, Leesburg area, Virginia, called the Grace Bible Church, and that that ministry has been in decline, and that we want to bring refreshment and restart to that, and, and that's why Dave Jordan was here last week. He's a, a seminary graduate from the Master's Seminary, and our plan and our goal is to place him there as a new pastor to help oversee that ministry and for them to come under our leadership for about a year and to help give direction and, and refreshment and restart. And I recognize that these things have had somewhat of an impact. There's been um, uh, some busy weeks and, and an example is how just this week, uh, this past week on Tuesday evening, our elder board met for about three and a half hours on Tuesday evening. And I would say about three of those hours were given to this matter of these churches, and particularly Grace Bible Church. And we had very important matters of business for here at Fellowship to discuss. And we had to table some of those things, wait for our next time to get together and take care of some of it on, uh, by email connection throughout the elder board and to bring leadership that way. And I know that there's been a few weeks where sometimes pastoral care and shepherding has gone lacking a little bit because of misdirection and, and, and helping a neighbor in need at this time. And I just felt that it was important for us to stop as a church together before we meet tonight is in, in the context of a business meeting and, and just remind ourselves why we're doing what we're, we're doing. Remind ourselves of this vital doctrine of rescue, the doctrine of refreshment. You might find it interesting to think for a minute here about this story. Let's just think about what happened here. First thing that we see in the story, and and this is still by way of introduction, that, that the priest and the Levite, as they went by, think about it, they were conditioned not to help. Their whole society and their whole culture conditioned them that that's them and this is us and we don't go over there and we don't help them. And, and they were conditioned not to help and yet, This Samaritan, who though he had grown up in a cultural context, conditioned not to help as well, notice that in verse 33 it says that his compassion drove him to help. So he overcomes his social and cultural conditioning with a heart of compassion. And then notice that how he approaches this guy. He puts him on his own animal. He gets him to the inn. He, he helps take care of his wounds. He makes sure there's a plan to take care of this guy until he's recovered. till he can stand on his own two feet. And he takes and he connects. He connects with the need. His own resources willing to pay out of his own pocket. He changed his travel agenda, no doubt. He inconvenienced himself personally so that he could help this neighbor in need. And there it is, a theology of rescue, a doctrine of refreshment. It's interesting to me, coming out of our Ten Commandments series this summer, we've been preaching through the Ten Commandments, if you're new to us. It's interesting to me that you'll note in this story that, that this the theology of rescue that Jesus tells in the form of the good Samaritan story springs from a question, a very important question, how may I have eternal life? And Jesus directs him exactly backwards to the law. Have you been able to keep the law? And what does the law say? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you're correct. So the guy, he wanted to know then, well, then who's my neighbor? If I need to love my neighbor as myself, I I certainly must define my neighbors. But it's interesting to me that springing out of this instruction from the law and this encapsulating of all of the Old Testament law into the column that teaches us how to love the Lord our God or teaches us how to love our fellow man, and we talked about that in our Ten Commandments series uh, regularly, that out of the law and the keeping of the law in an appropriate manner in this age of grace, that if we keep the law, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, we love our fellow man as a demonstration of our love for God, and therefore we practice the doctrine of refreshment. And it's driven by an appropriate keeping of the law. But let me also remind you that this this theology of rescue is modeled by God Himself. Think about what is the most familiar Bible verse of all except for maybe Jesus wept. It's John 3:16, right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see the theology of rescue there? Do you see someone with a resource and someone with a need and the person with the resource reaching out to the person in need and inconveniencing himself personally so that he could rescue us, right? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. We needed rescued. And Paul said in Romans 5 that God commendeth or demonstrated his love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the doctrine of refreshment if I've ever seen it. Our need, met by His resource, out of His grace and His mercy and kindness to us. So it's in the keeping of the law that we exercise the, the theology of rescue. It's in modeling our own Heavenly Father and in our own salvation that we see the doctrine of refreshment. But let's turn in our, uh, in the, in our New Testament farther back to 1 John 3.16. You're going to see that this doctrine of rescue, this doctrine of refreshment, is seen both in John 3.16 and then in 1 John 3.16. It's two easy verses to remember. The Gospel of John 3.16 and then the Epistle of John, 1 John 3.16. And you'll notice that throughout our entire New Testament, the theology of rescue is taught as a fundamental doctrine of the local church. Not only did God rescue us and make us a peculiar people of His own, but we are instructed over and over and over that we are to rescue one another. That we are to look around the body of Christ and we are to take care of one another. We're to love one another. We're to meet one another's needs. We're to give to one another. We're to help one another. We're to encourage one another. And it's throughout our New Testament. It's encapsulated right here in 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. Take a look. It says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. There it is, the model. All right, That's God in Christ. Christ laying down His life for us in surrender to the Father's will. And as a result of that model, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That means the body of Christ has a special role in taking care of one another. But if anyone has the wor- this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, that was modeled in the priest and the Levite in Luke 10, right? They had resources, but they closed their heart and they closed their eyes to the need and they circumvented the need so as to not inconvenience themselves personally. But if anyone, again, verse 17, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How can you say that you love God if you're going to ignore your brother's needs? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Let's not just talk about our love, but let's show it in deed and in truth. And there it is, this, this theology of rescue clearly spelled out for us. It springs from the keeping of the law under grace. It, it's modeled for us by God himself in John 3.16, and it's directly instructed to the church over and over again. Now, I would like to apply this theology of rescue to our church corporately. You see, there's something special about local churches... We believe in a universal church. We believe that Believers in the Lord Christ are connected around the world. Some of you know exactly what I mean. If you've traveled or you've gone on vacation, maybe you've been at the beach and, you know, you've been away from home for a while and you haven't been at church, it's summertime, and you decide to go to some little church down on the corner and you walk in and, you know, it might not be exactly like what you're used to, but God's people are there and your spirit bears witness with their spirit and you just have a refreshing time and you're connecting with God's people. I've had this experience in the in the bush of Alaska in muddy old Eskimo villages with Old Eskimo people and young Eskimos and up there and they speak English a little bit different and we speak like this and some of them, the olds don't have their teeth in and they get up and sing and praise God and give testimony and you're just refreshed and you're the people of God and you're together in the local church on the side of the Yukon River or in the bush of Malawi, Africa and you come walking up and you can hear them singing and they're singing praise to the Lord and your heart is lifted and you're connected with the body of Christ. And we we recognize that connection universally. But yet in God's sovereign plan, He's designed for communities of believers to dwell together in unity. He's called for the local church to be identified. And and that's one of the things that seems like has happened lately, is that the Lord has just directed our way some smaller identifiable bodies and and groups of people that have been um, weakened either through just a matriculation of their saints going to heaven or whatever the reason is, just a lack of, of leadership for a season and they've taken a toll and they're diminished. And for some reason, God has directed them our way. And I've told you how uh, on, on a couple of occasions, an older gentleman looked at me and said, Pastor Van, when are you going to come take over our church? We need help. If, if we don't get some help, it's just going to shut down. What do you do with that? Do you say, sorry, I'm pretty busy this week. And so I just want us to to remind ourselves of how important it is for God's people to refresh other groups of God's people. For us to be careful and cautious, not to be too in-focused, even when it inconveniences us personally. Even when, like talking to my own daughter last night on the phone, about 10 o'clock, Tosh called Hey, Tosh, how's it going? Good, Dad, how are you? Are you preaching tomorrow, Dad? She's right up here. It's our adult daughter, if you don't know her. Are you preaching tomorrow, Dad? Yeah, yeah, I am. Man, Dad, I can't even remember the last time you preached. And I was like, oh, man, I wonder if everybody else thinks that. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But it disrupts our normal flow. It's distracting, and indeed, it has had... Um, taken space on our leadership, in our leadership journals and on our calendars. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time is, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And I would like us to look in our New Testament, in this book of Acts, that is about the formation of the early church. And I would like then for the remainder of our time to look at at an an example and a living model of what the theology of rescue looks like in church world. How churches impact one another. I think you'll find it interesting and helpful even in your own life, but I think it's also very important for us as the body of Christ here, as Fellowship Bible Church, to be on the same page and for you to understand our motives and our motivation and what's driving us. And then to work together and to be patient and, and to be a part of the, the grand scheme as we, as we allow the Lord to show us who to minister to and how to minister. And in, and, in, and in all of this, I'm not saying in any way that shepherding and caring for our needy families and ministering spiritually here should, should fail or fall by the wayside. That's what we need to fight to keep that up but it's helpful if we're in this thing together and it's not the leadership way out in front of the congregation. In Acts chapter 11, you need to understand that uh, we're going to begin with verse 19. You need to understand that the church is not very old. You'll recall that in Acts chapter 1 is when Jesus went back up into heaven 40 days after his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And and that was where the promise was of his return as well. And we're still waiting for that return. And then you know that the, that the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter two. And it was quite a scene there in Jerusalem as they were waiting. The Spirit of God with a, as, as a rushing wind and in tongues of fire came upon them. Uh, they could do signs and wonders at this time. There, think about it. There, there is no church anywhere. And in Jerusalem, the church begins. The first, Christ-centered Bible church Post Old Testament, no more sacrifices. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about his completed work on the cross. We are now the body of Christ represented on earth. The Gospels haven't been written yet. They're still living it out. The epistles have not been written. There's no instruction. And in fact, in the earlier chapters of Acts, we still have the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of of the important local church information in our New Testament. He's still Saul. You remember his story? He still Saul, and he's a missionary of destruction. He literally despises the concept. He's an Old Testament scholar. He was a, he was a. Uh, A Pharisee of Pharisees. He was highly educated under Judaism, and he absolutely refused to believe that this Nazarene, Jesus, who had been born of the Virgin Mary, was the Messiah that he knew was promised in the Old Testament, and he absolutely refused to buy into it. And in fact, if anybody believed that Jesus was the Christ, he went and he tried to kill him, and he did indeed kill him. And we have in the earlier chapters as well, the first martyrdom of the church, and that's what's going to be referenced in Verse 19 of chapter 11, when we read our text here in a minute. And so Saul, though, then following the martyrdom of Stephen. He's going about destroying churches. He's on the road to Damascus. After he kills Stephen, he's the one holding the coats. He's the one who was leading the way as they took rocks and bricks and bashed in the skull of this precious deacon in the local church there who had a great testimony and was a preacher of the gospel, Stephen. And he dies right there and the brothers come with great sadness and bury him. And old Saul packs up, gets his guys, heads down the road, heading down the road to Damascus and he's going to find more these Christ followers and destroy them. And that's when, zappo, bamo, God sends a bright light, blinds him for three days, knocks him to his knees, and God gets his man. And Saul goes from being wreaking havoc in the churches and being a missionary of destruction to becoming the mightiest church planter preacher that, that we have recorded in scripture, the greatest preacher, no doubt, apart from our Lord Jesus himself impacting the church even today through his writings, our epistles. He gets his name changed to Paul. God snatches him up and Paul has direct communication with the risen Christ. He's convinced that Jesus is the Christ. He's now appointed personally by Christ to go be his minister. To whom? to the Gentiles. And that's something else you need to recognize as we read our text here. That this is a time in the church, the church had only been in Jerusalem, it is now going to be scattered by the persecution that's going on, and you need to know that it's a brand new concept. And in the previous chapter, Peter, who the Apostle Peter, who is a missionary to the Jews, Paul is the pastor and missionary to the Gentiles, Peter is the pastor and missionary to the Jews, that he's just figured it out that God so loved the Jews, God so loved the world, and that Gentiles are allowed in the camp. What a novel idea that Christ's death and burial and resurrection is for all people everywhere. And it's not just for the Jews, it's not just for those who are coming out of Judaism. So let's read our text quickly, and let's get a sense of what's happening here. And we want to see, modeled for us here, a number of the realities of what's going on in the church as they live out the theology of rescue. Now those who were scattered, Acts 11.19, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, so there's the martyrdom of Stephen, the persecution is ongoing, and so the believers in Jerusalem scatter run for their lives. You need to know that they headed up to Antioch, and that's going to be a main point in this passage. I want you to think in terms of the Jerusalem church, where the persecution stems out of that, and the martyrdom of Stephen, so that it scatters the believers. And then he's going to focus particularly on Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, up above in present-day Syria. He's also going to mention Cyprus, which is where... Barnabas, who's a key player in this passage, is from, so go about 250 miles north of Jerusalem, then head about 60 miles out in the Mediterranean Sea, and there's the island of Cyprus, the third largest island in the Mediterranean where people live, and it's a thriving place. So the believers leave Jerusalem, go north to Antioch 300 miles, as well as to Cyprus and to Pamphylia. And and, and it says um, in verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Those were the Greeks and Greek-speaking Jews who lived in Greek culture, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Don't you love that phrase? He came and he saw the grace of God at work. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a transformative gospel, isn't it? If you're around people who say they're followers of Christ and you can't tell it, That's a yellow flag that maybe you're really not a follower of Christ. You know, in our New Testament, there's no such thing as a person's life who when they accept Christ and admit their sin and take on the righteousness of Christ and lay down their sinfulness at the cross, they're a new creation in Christ. And in our New Testament, there's no such thing as a believer in the Lord Christ who's not in process of change then. The old ways are dying, the new ways are coming in, and I just think that's a great testimony. Barnabas goes up there and he can just see the grace of God at work in the lives of these people. Let's read on. Verse 23 again. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for, there he is, Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. At this time, you need to know that Saul was not known as Paul yet. He was still kind of feared. And he had been set aside for a couple years of special training by our Lord. He's been in the wilderness a little bit. Now he's going to connect with the churches in a brand new way. And he's going to become the mighty preacher Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. You see, Saul, who became Paul, the Apostle Paul, was an expert on the Bible and the Old Testament. And even after his conversion immediately Saul could take the Old Testament and prove to you that Jesus was the Messiah through the Old Testament. And he could teach them exactly who Jesus was. And so Barnabas figures out, I need help. God's doing a great work up here in Antioch. I've got to get some help. So he goes looking for Saul and he finds him. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, you ought to name your kid Agabus. If you have a boy, Pastor Mark, name him Agabus. It's a good name. Stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, you need to understand that what we're reading here in Acts chapter 11 is a description of what was happening. It's living history. It's a record of how the churches acted and lived. So it's not necessarily the way we have to do it. There's nothing in the text that says, be sure and do this. On the other hand, there's some pretty heavyweights involved in the story, right? Peter... Barnabas, Saul, who becomes Paul, and and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, this is what they're doing. And if this is what these guys did, then we can learn from it. And so though it's not what we would say prescriptive, that is, we have to do it. It's not given as a directive like so much of the Apostle Paul's writing in the pastoral epistles. Do this, don't do that. It's just a description, we can learn from it as a model, and let me remind you that this is our model today of what a church looks like that is living out, a local church that is living out the theology of rescue, the doctrine of refreshment. Let me just list off some things that are happening quickly, and you'll pick it up easily. Notice what... We first see when we read verses 19 and 20 back in our text. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution, they're scattered. They head up north. They're speaking the word to no one except Jews, except for these men, no name men. We don't have their names. They're speaking to Greeks, and they come to Antioch, and they're speaking to the Greeks, and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. And this hand was, of the Lord was upon them, and people were being saved. The first thing I want to note about this passage is that these were strategic times for church growth. These were strategic times for church growth. Whatever the stimulus, and in this case it was began with persecution, and then it moved out also with the great revelation to Peter earlier in chapter 11 that we didn't cover, and to others that the gospel is for all people everywhere. All of a sudden the church doesn't feel the same. Because of the persecution and people fleeing, people are gathering in Jerusalem at the church, and half of them are gone. Not everybody evacuated or fled as refugees, but many of them had to flee. And they headed up to other parts north, Antioch and Cyprus, and they spread out. And what does God do? God used it to spread the gospel and to plant more churches. Strategic times. Times of change, times that don't feel normal for the church. Everything's disrupted. And then you have this racial uh, integration of the Gentiles and the Jews coming together. We're now the body of Christ. It's not man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. It's the body of Christ. We're all equal. It's all about the gospel, strategic times. As we read on, we also notice in verse 20, number 2, though, that they're preaching Christ. Not only is it strategic times, but they're preaching Christ. And isn't that the first priority of the church? And there we have modeled for us these guys. And don't you appreciate these these guys that their names are not given. It just says in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Boy, God has his people everywhere, doesn't he? He has his people everywhere. And what are they doing? They're preaching Christ. And as they preach Christ, we need to see that the third thing that's happening is that souls are being saved. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They believed, and they turned away from their sin and turned toward the Lord. It's a picture of repentance, isn't it? It's a picture of believing in Christ and turning away from the old ways. And here their lives are being changed, and these no-name gospel preachers up in Cyrene and Cyprus are preaching the gospel and people are being saved and you get the idea that it was the gospel was spreading and it was a great work and souls are being saved. And you think about when souls are being saved, what's happening? Daddies are coming back to mom and families are being healed and little boys and girls all of a sudden they see something different in their papa and they see their dad's not cussing like he used to. He's not worrying about paying the bills as much, and he's getting out of bed with a little more cheer in his life, and the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to transform and change, and believers in the Christ are, in Christ are growing. Now notice what happens. The Lord was with them, and a great number, it says, believed, turned to the Lord. Then verse 22, Then the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, Alright, so 300 miles to the north, the gospel is spreading, lives are being transformed, it's a great number, and way back 300 miles south, where some of these people had left from earlier because of the persecution, the word is getting back. Maybe cousins came back, or maybe uh, families were reunited in the word. You can't believe what's happening up in Antioch. The gospel is spreading and these guys from Cyrene are preaching the gospel and there's all kinds of people being saved. And so the church at Jerusalem does what? They start to pray for them, but they don't just pray for them. They look around and they pick out just the right guy to go check it out and to find out what's going on and to see how they can connect with them. And the fourth thing I want you to see is connected churches. Connected churches. We now have Jerusalem and Antioch that are going to be connected. Notice verse 22 once again. The report came of this to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now Barnabas, back in, in Acts chapter 4, you have to remember that his nickname was what? It was the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. He was just the right guy to send he wasn't intimidating. He had resources. Remember, he's the guy in the story of Ananias and Sapphira that we referenced a couple of weeks ago when they tried to replicate what Barnabas had done in selling land and bringing the offering to the church. When Ananias and Sapphira did that, they got struck dead for lying to Peter and lying to God and, and having false witness in the church. And God wanted a pure church. and He made a demonstration out of them. Barnabas was the guy who could humbly... Spread his resources. He cared about people. He was an encourager. He was one who came alongside and put, put his arm around you. And he had wisdom and he was trusted. And so they sent him. And don't you think the church at Jerusalem missed Barnabas? I'm sure he did. they did. He was one of their best givers. He was one of their greatest encouragers. And yet he sent off to connect with the other church. So we have connected churches. And notice what we read on for a whole then he said and when he had found back uh, backup and a great many people were added to the lord so barnabas verse 25 went to tarsus to look for saul barnabas gets up there realizes that they need help And he knows exactly the resource to connect to the need. He knows somebody who knows his Bible better than anybody. He knows somebody who's a powerful preacher, a great discipler, and his name is Saul, and he hasn't been welcomed in very well yet. So Barnabas goes and looks for him. There's no Facebook, there's no telephones, he has to go on a trip, he goes and looks for them, he finds them, and he brings them back to Antioch, and with his arm around Saul, he introduces him to the Greeks there, and he says, this guy is going to teach you, he stays there, and for one year, look what it says, and for one year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Wouldn't that have been great to have Saul, with all of his knowledge, fresh out of Judaism, fresh from his conversion, essentially, filled with the zeal of the gospel, spending a whole year in the church there, discipling the believers. And so it was in Antioch, it says, that the disciples were first called Christians. So we have Jerusalem and Antioch connected. We have connected churches. Let's not miss the fact, number five, that we have key people involved. We have Barnabas leaving the Jerusalem church. We have Barnabas finding Saul. He's a key person. And God raised up key people at just the right time. Just what was needed for the church. Notice then that there was spiritual growth. They taught a great many people, and then there, these people were disciples of Christ, and they were first called Christians. We see spiritual growth taking place from the teaching of the word. Christian means to be of the party of. Do you know that? Christian. Christian. I am of the party of Christ, like a Republican. Ian, of the party of the Republic. I am a follower of Christ. This became their identity. It was something that was a put-down. It was, you're a Christian. The Christians took it and wore it with pride. You better believe I'm of the party of Christ. That's how strong they were becoming in this time of persecution. In fact, church history bears out for us. That there were testimonies of some of the early church martyrs that when they were brought into the courts to be tried with their very neck on the line or be tossed to lions, that they refused to bear testimony in the court. They refused to deny Christ. And in fact, the only thing they would say when the accusations were read against them, they would respond with this phrase I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And then out they would go and lose their life of the party of Christ. They're growing strong. They're being discipled through connected churches, through key people, their spiritual growth. But now notice in verse 27 as we wrap up. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. The seventh thing we see going on in the church is that it's all happening in a time of, it's difficult times. Not only when we started, it was it's strategic times, but it's difficult times. God raised up Agabus at this time under the apostles' authority. Other men in the church were gifted through the Holy Spirit. They could prophesy, they could speak in tongues. These gifts gradually faded out upon the completion of scripture, upon the establishment of the local church. These things, you don't see them later in the pastoral epistles, but at this time, early on in the church planting and church growth movement of Acts, you see great signs and wonders. Agabus stands up and he says, people, you need to know there's great famine coming, and so they prepared for the famines. You notice it's parenthetically given that this was under the Roman emperor Claudius, and... Uh, secular history, secular historical records bear this out as well. This is a window of time from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54, about a 13-year window where there were multiple bad years of famine. And indeed, it was a difficult time and there was, there was no rain. And so Agabus stands up and he foretells, and we have difficult times and, that are going to be faced. And so look what happens and so the disciples, verse 29, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So we're in Antioch. Agabus stands up, get, prophesies that there's going to be difficult times. The famine started down south, 300 miles south, back in Judea and around Jerusalem. And so the people in Antioch put together resources to connect with the needs down back down in Jerusalem. It's just flip-flopping, isn't it? Early on, the spiritual needs and the spiritual demands in Antioch were such that in Jerusalem, they sent their best people over to help them. Later on, over a year later, they gather up food and head back to Jerusalem to help them. And so what we have is we have shared resources between the churches. We have shared resources from personnel to ground corn and food. It's interesting. We see this in the New Testament and other places as well. If you're taking notes, you might write down Romans 15, verses 26 and 27. Romans 15, verses 26 and 27. And you'll notice there that the Apostle Paul talks about this very thing, where in reciprocating action from those who fed you spiritually, you in turn can take care of them physically. And that's what happened church to church. So there were shared resources. Then notice how it worked. They sent relief to the brothers living in Judea. And then verse 30... And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And this is the first time we see elder leadership. That's number nine. Our ninth observation is elder leadership. First time in our New Testament churches here that we see the elders taking control, determining God's will, spreading the resources, connecting needs and resources. Listen, how does this apply to our church today? There it is, just a testimony of the church in Jerusalem and the church at Antioch. But folks, I have to tell you, I really believe that these are strategic days in America as well for the church. These are days of, of darkness, extreme darkness. We're not being persecuted, at least not yet. And these are, these are extremely dark days spiritually. And people do not acknowledge God, and yet I think it's a strategic time for the church to spread and to grow. It's not a time for churches to close down. It's a time for the gospel to go forward. It's a time for us to be preaching Christ. It's a time to see souls saved. It's a time to connect our churches' needs being met by the resources of the brothers and sisters in Christ as we live out the doctrine of refreshment. Notice that there was key people involved, Barnabas, Saul, Peter, Agabus, key people. I ought to tell you, I'm, I am so thankful for key people God's bringing here. I've referenced this here before. Jim Shoupy moved over here to come to our church. I don't think you appreciate him enough. I don't think you appreciate the fact that he might have moved to Independent Bible Church and he came here. And we're on the radio and you can hear that. We got Jim Shoopy. What a resource. To retire here, to teach us God's word, to teach our classes, to teach our Evening Bible Institute, to lend assistance and spiritual guidance in his old age while he still has the youth, the strength of youth. Tom in home for two years from the field. Key people here right now at a time when we potentially could be busier than ever. God is giving us key people we should see out of this spiritual growth this fall we're going to have a renewal of our adult ministries which I hope the adults will come out and that will raise up our, you know, our children's ministries we already have excellent teachers and programs in place for our children they just need to get there and be faithful as if pretend that Olympians is soccer pretend that Sunday school is dance then you won't miss then you'll come in the rain it's amazing how that works But with these key people in place, there's going to be more adult classes in place. We need to grow spiritually. We need to be discipled. And there should be spiritual growth because there's going to be more difficult times ahead. I'm sure of it. And it's going to be more important than ever that we have our network of Bible churches for shared resources. And it's a time for vital, biblical, loving, but strong, courageous elder leadership. I just see this as such a model. I just think it's right there. The theology of rescue started with God himself, lived out by the early church, modeled for us today at a time when we're really good at minding our own business, at a time when we don't like to be inconvenienced personally. And I like it best when my pastor's in the pulpit here. Well, you can handle it for a couple of weeks. There's no plan for me to rotate through any other pulpits and let me tell you that your pastor would rather be in this pulpit than any other pulpit. But this is a time for us to to be together as a church. This is a time for us to be prepared for difficult days and for us to to take the resources with which God has blessed us and pour them out on the needy brothers and sisters around us in multiple ways. I hope you'll come tonight at six o'clock. I hope you'll come be a part of Just sharing. It's not that complicated. We'll be sharing exactly what we're doing, how it's going. We need a vote from our membership, so we need a quorum. We're going to make a few other announcements that are important to our ministry here. Bring a dessert at 6 o'clock. Be there for business at 6.30. And let's be like Jerusalem and Antioch. Don't you think? Let's be connected with other churches. Let's share our resources Let's be disciples of Christ and growing strong in these strategic yet potentially difficult days. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you strengthen us, please, as a church? Would you help us to grow strong together? Would you help us to be deeply in love with Jesus? Firmly committed to the Word. Highly committed to one another and to our elder leadership. Graciously interacting with one another. Loving one another with that agape love that covers a multitude of wrongs. And we all recognize our inadequacies and our inefficiencies and our shortcomings. And so this is a time, Father, for your spirit to move among us. It's a time for your word to be meaningful. It's a time for us to be in prayer. It's a time for us to be giving generously. It's a time for us to be looking out, not hunkering down, looking within and protecting ourselves. So would you raise up your church to be a strong church, to be a blessing, but yet give us wisdom. Help us to know our limitations. Help us to recognize the difference between the desires of the flesh and the leading of the Spirit. Help us to have deep-seated, confident unity among the body, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.